out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Ian O'Sullivan, who I spoke to very recently. It was only last month, which is good going for me. He was a member of the band who we loved back in the 90s, the Aardvarks, but he's also been in various other musical combos, including the Fallen Trees. But for those who may be thinking, the Aardvarks, they ring a bell. Yes, they do. They started, I think, in the late 80s. Yes, into the 90s. God, I'm so good on this. And um, they had a bit of a uh, sort of a Britpop sort of psychedelic kind of vibe groove about them. Anyway, they brought an album out, I think it was 95, called Bargain, that had one of the greatest songs of all time, Time to Fly. It was the last track on side two. We loved that record so much. Anyway, that stayed with me for mm, probably 25 years. Yes, I'll have to do the maths. Anyway, look, I'm babbling. So um, this is the about the aardvarks and also about obviously Ian O'Sullivan's musical career indeed so look sit back relax and uh, enjoy now after several minutes of casual chat which gets edited out let's face it you don't need to hear that you've got another 50 minutes of just two people chatting now um yes we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early musical influences so Ian it's over to you Yeah, I think it was very similar, David. Um, I, I used to love Slade a lot. I had a Slade t-shirt when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, Sweet and Glitterback, Gary Glitter, all that stuff I used to really like. Um, but the, the first 45 I bought was actually Amateur Hour by Sparks. So, so right. that was, God, that that was so the cool. first single I got. Yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> not bad, not bad for a first 45. So, uh, That's but yeah, I love Sparks as well. Um so yeah, I was really into that sort of, you know, the pop charts and Top of the Pops and all that stuff that was going on at that kind of period. But um, I, what happened was about 73, I suppose, um, I, I bought the Beatles Red, the double album, yes. 66, and that just sort of spun me out into a completely different sort of road, really. Uh, I just became an absolute Beatles obsessive, um, and I don't think I listened to much else for at least three years I mean I was aware of stuff that was on in the charts because the radio was always on in the house and um, and my mum used to do cleaning jobs uh, sometimes during uh, in the school holidays I would go along with her and the radio would always be on so I was always hearing the charts chart music into such a I think it was probably to such a degree that you know I heard the song so often I just probably never thought of really bother buying them you know because new stuff would come along and you just you get into that but um meanwhile it was really a pretty deep um, fixation with, with with the Beatles really um Beatles, yes. I would say took me up to probably the late 70s I would say god that's but, impressive um, yeah but I've also because I've got an older brother I've got a brother who's 10 years older than me so he's he's kind of in his mid-60s now so I remember what was he into well, I think as a teenager, he was into Beach Boy. He, he wasn't so much a, a Beatle fan at that time. I think he, you know, he liked them, but he didn't have any of the records. So there were no kind of, I, I didn't grow up with kind of original Beatle albums everywhere. You know, my parents didn't buy them. Yes. My brother didn't buy them. But he, my brother was more of a Beach Boys fan. Blimey. Uh, funnily enough. 
but he always said it was they seemed a, a far more exotic prospect you know listening to songs about surf and sand and beautiful beaches was like far more kind of exotic to him yes. so that that sort of so I, I remember hearing that a lot the kind of particularly the sort of surf surf beach boy period um and i do remember i do remember hearing strawberry fields at a very very early age i mean that's so, such a trippy song isn't it actually yeah it's such a trippy song because you probably realize i've got a brother who's seven years older and um yeah so he you know because because i grew up in a house a bungalow actually <laughs> in a village in a countryside with nothing on mm. and um and we didn't have a record player until the early 70s and then my brother who was seven years older he brought home you know like sergeant pepper and and mm. you know, buy yellow brick road and then he got all this prog stuff like yes and genesis and yeah. by yeah. nash barker james harvest so i got quite obsessed with that but interestingly mm. um yes sergeant pepper you know the b side at the side two with good morning just blew my mind mm. and i didn't yeah. realize at the time and it was only kind of probably recently thinking back of it that the beatles had only just broken up hadn't they you know and yet that's it, the weird it, thing about it. It, it it was a relatively recent event when you think about it um because i think by about 76 i think because they, they were reissuing the singles and the you know the beatles were you know, Stars on 45. Dancing. No, that was in the 80s, actually. Well, no, there, there was kind of BMI re-releases in the kind of 76 period, and uh, you'd get a nice photograph on the back. You'd get a sort of, um, uh, you know, some kind of parlophone picture on the front, but on the back they'd have a nice photograph. And, you know, they were charting, you know, to get back was in the charts, and I feel fine and stuff like that. And uh, so that was kind of... Uh, and I think there was a bit of... Um, I don't know if it tied in with some kind of idea that maybe they might get back, or, or I think it was just probably EMI just re-churning its catalogue and thinking, well, we can make some money out of the Beatles again, so just start reissuing these things. Yeah, but, I guess um, so. But a friend of my dad used to work at EMI, and he used to... We used to be able to get cassettes from him for a pound. Blimey. And, uh, so uh, having had 62, 66 as you know, my main album, um, I suddenly managed to kind of completely get the full library of Beatles stuff on cassette. <laughs> wow, that must uh, be, that's quite a jump uh, from that that first period to the second period, isn't it, Ellis? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But um, but the thing was, uh, when I got Sergeant Pe the first one I got was, Pe was Sergeant Pepper on cassette. And of course, we didn't actually have a cassette player, and I had to wait about a week for my brother to come around with his tape player. So this whole week, I was just carrying this thing around <laughs> <laughs> trying to imagine what it sounded like so yes it was, it was quite and what, yeah and you know when you heard it you thought my god this is this is incredible you know? yes it, it was it was quite you know quite amazing and i guess at the same time there were those kind of albums i remember band on the run was one particular album my, my brother bought and then there was um the john lennon i suppose walls and bridges i think that was mm. one another one called shape which which also yeah to have a lot of good stuff on so there was a sort of those two solo albums and obviously pete frampton comes live everyone had that one in the house but my parents were really into terrible country and western and stuff like that and they only you know the, the boxcar <laughs> willie <laughs> it's terrible this <laughs> is not good even now it's not good um but you know they could have been cool country and western but they didn't so that was kind of it was kind of easy to almost rebel against your parents really wasn't it because you know there was nothing boxcar willie crystal girl Tammy went, well, I don't know, Tammy went, that's probably all right. Yeah, well, it was, uh, yeah we had a, because my, my parents are Irish, so, we, you know, we had, there's always an affinity with, our, you know, Irish and uh, and country music. So, uh, you know, you had American country music, we had some of the Irish country music as well. 
but my dad, you know, my dad liked stuff like Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison. So I was, yeah, I did used to hear that as well, yeah. which was great. Um, yeah, so that was, you know, there was a little bit of, there were sort of different sounds coming out of the house, I guess, at that point. Um, but my brother, I think by the time he got to about 18, you know, a bit, a bit like yours, you know, he was uh, into his prog and uh, particularly, yes, I mean, it was, it was, yes, just all the, all the way. So, um, yes, I yeah, know, so, I, I even know the solo work of Rick Wakeman particularly well, actually, which is quite weird. Yeah. Um, but then when you're 13 and you just go sneak into his room and play his records, you know, it's hard, um, you know, you do get very excited by hearing King Arthur and Journey to the Centre of the Earth. So I thought it was very cool. So that's good. Yeah. So he probably hated punk rock, didn't he? He really didn't like it at all. And, no, my um, brother hated it as well. <laughs> and the funny thing is, at that time, the house we lived in, the house I grew up in, we had, we had a kind of couple of spare rooms upstairs and we used to rent them out to lodgers and... For a couple of years, we had this sort of young guy called Paul, and um, he'd been in a band called, they were an awful name, they were called Zip Vixen, and they were just kind of your classic kind of 70s pub rock sort of band. But they were quite young guys, but they were stuck in that sort of pub rock thing. Yes. And I think when, when, when punk hit, they suddenly thought, actually, you know, this is where it's at. So he sort of cut his hair and everything, and, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, never mind the the bollocks was being played quite a lot in the house and his room was right next to my brother's and it just used to drive my brother crazy listening, <laughs> hearing this stuff <laughs> yes. used to moan about oh are you playing that sex pistols again i know and, uh, so... i bet i bet your brother didn't have a seven inch single in the in his record collection did he no he didn't he no. didn't he probably he bought, he bought those plastic sleeves didn't he for the albums that's all right god my brother that... did the same he was so possessive and anal about it it's unbelievable um so yeah so that's quite exciting so when did you start to think that you were gonna take up a musical instrument well i'd always been uh, drawn to the drums um from a very early age um it was always the drummers i used to like to to watch you know the glitter band and uh uh, and you know all those sort of bands that I'd all just slayed. I used to love watching the drummers mostly, yes. and I, I used to love the kits. I used to way the love the way the kits used to look on the television, um, particularly if they played a kind of a, a see-through, a purple see-through perspexy kind of drum kit. That sort of thing to me, I thought I would just love to have a drum kit like that. You know? Yes, I'm, so I'm sure, it was always I'm... kind of. So did you get very excited when you saw Cozy Powell, sort of, you know, who, who was a solo artist in the 70s? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I so like his stuff. Yeah, that's like watching him. Anybody, all the drama, I just would fix, just focus on the dramas. And and similarly, I mean, at that time, I used to go out as a, and as a kid in those days uh, to, to the Irish club with my parents on a Saturday night. And at that point, kids used to be able to go into the club, the, the Irish clubs, and there was always bands on, so I would just sit at the side and watch the drummer all evening. And yeah. um, I would always, usually there'd be an interval, and nine times out of ten, I would ask the drummer if I could have a quick go in his drums, which they'd always say no. Uh, you know, they didn't want to let a child bashing away on their prized drum kit during an interval. And I don't suppose it probably would have gone down very well with people anyway. But, <laughs> but when I was about 11, we went, we were on holiday in the Isle of Sheppey, and uh, on this holiday camp, and every night we were down the, the social and every night there was a band because that was the kind of a circuit you know so you'd have different bands playing every night and i did yeah. the same thing 
getting turned down every time. But on one particular night, this guy said, yeah, sure, have a, have a go. So um, that, that was the first time I actually sat around a drum kit when I was about 11. And um, he gave me a pair of sticks. So I thought, wow, this is great. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to play, you know. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually have a drum kit for quite a while. I didn't actually get one until I was about 17, which was a shame, really, because, um, you know, I could have been getting on with it during that time. Yeah. God, your brother would have hated it, wouldn't he? <laughs> so, so when you were 17, so that was probably, oh, God, that was probably 1980. Um, 82. 82. Yeah. So, yes. Mm. So that was quite a, a, a kind of a marker moment. Yes, because in that, 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 that sort of time, indie rock was about to take off, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And that, that yeah. was quite a significant moment because Thatcher had got in 79 and then we had that post-punk period, which was quite arty and you had to pretend to like records, even though they're quite difficult, actually. You know, <laughs> like Wire and, um, yes, Gang of Four and all those scratchy bands and Public Image Limited. But then, yes, yeah, so, so then there was like those, those early indie bands and then the Smiths came along. But before that, we, you'd, we'd both missed the, the new psychedelic movement, hadn't we, with all those mm. kind of great bands that only lasted for about 12 months which was quite bizarre really <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah so um, so how did what so then what happened when you were 17 well um i got a drum kit so that was a start and that was a, a just a little second hand thing which um i got through a, a friend friend of a friend sort of thing didn't have to pay anything for it and it was a bit of a composite drum kit i think it was cobbled together from about two different drum kits and uh so i started playing with a um, drums with a, a guy I was at school with and he was he, he was always noodling away on the guitar so the two of us would just get together and have a little jam and, and do some covers you know Beatles songs or whatever and uh, not really thinking a lot of it but uh, and that developed into a school band so we recruited a couple of other people and it was just like a, an after school activity really we didn't really have any visions of um, doing anything as such with it it was just a chance to play um, but yeah, so I suppose, yeah, so that was 82, but about, about 84, I, I was playing more, I, I wanted to, I thought it'd be good to play live, it would be nice to play in a band that played gigs, so, yeah. so that's kind of about the period I was starting to think along those lines, really. So where did you grow up again? I'm a West Londoner, I'm from Ealing. Right, so you're West right London. in there, that's, that's quite different to the the wilds of the Suffolk countryside. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so you must have been sort of picking up this exciting scene because there was all those kind of, as as I sort of, you know, realised in that book, you know, C86 and all that by Neil Taylor, you know, there was all these kind of indie clubs and, and bands that were just starting to mushroom out because obviously the early 80s, there was a lot of unemployment and job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. So quite a lot of people I've, I've interviewed have all been you know, that was their apprenticeship. Well, they one year of being sort of basically on the dole, taking lots of drugs and being in the band, really. So as you kind of, as you probably realise, you know, that, that 12 months often gave people that, that kind of time to sort of create something. And then we had the dear old John Peel show, which was another kind of platform. And, and he was the great gatekeeper, wasn't he? So were you starting to get out and about and, and going to more gigs at that stage? Uh, well, I was a bit of a late starter, to be honest with you, David. I was a bit of a kind of a homebody, really, or just sort of hanging around locally with mates. And we, I think we, in, in a lot of ways, we were kind of oblivious to a lot of what was going on. Um, uh, it wasn't really until, I'd say, 
until about the age of 19 that we started venturing out to places like the Marquis uh, to see, I mean, we, we, we used to go and see Doctor and the Medics quite a bit. We became fans of theirs because we'd seen them play at a, one of the Alice's all-nighters at the Scala right. um, in, in King's Cross. And they came on about two o'clock in the morning and sort of woke everybody up. And we just thought, this great. So we kind of, we used to like to go and see them. But uh, we weren't what you would call particularly savvy in terms of indie and stuff like that. We were kind yeah. of, some, you know, there's a couple of people were, but I, I would say probably myself and other friends weren't that up on it too much, but you know, we kind of liked what we liked. And, you know, we, we weren't at that point going out a lot. It was only really through being, when I joined the Aardvarks later on that I became more immersed in, 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 in seeing other bands and going to clubs and stuff like that really so yeah I guess I'm you know it wasn't really something that I did a lot of prior to that you know right. <clears throat> so were the aardvarks going before you joined them or were you part they of were yeah they were going they were the funny thing is when I think about it I mean they were all still at school because uh, they were a bit younger than me I mean I'm the oldest out of them and I think I was I'm two years older than the the singer Gary, who's the next one down in terms of age. And uh, so I met them when I was about 20. And I think Gary was still doing his A-levels. And um, I'd met them through the bass player because I, I ended up working with the bass player on a, in a Saturday job in a local library. And we were just talking about music. And he said, I'm in this band called the Aardvarks. We play 60s type of music. And I said, oh, great. You know, what kind of stuff do you do? And at that point, they were just doing sort of who, small faces, he covers. And I thought, oh, sounds great. Um, but at that point, I was kind of more into, I, I'd got quite into garage punk and stuff. When right. I was about eight, 17, 18, I started going down that kind of road. So I was listening to Pebbles compilations, and Chocolate Soup, and sort of British freak beat compilations and American Garage. I already got a taste for that stuff. So... I think I started it to introduce a couple of covers, songs from that kind of genre into the set. But yeah, uh, yeah they, were, they were very young. I mean, Mark was only 16 on the guitarist. Was, and at that point, he was only 16 years old. And I mean, he was, you know, he is an amazing guitarist. I just, you know, I couldn't believe this guy who was this young could play so well. Yeah. Um, so they were two and, brothers, uh, weren't they? Two brothers, yeah. Gary the singer and Mark the guitarist. And... Um, yeah, the two brothers, and like I say, the uh, first time I played with them was in this in their school in a classroom. They used to have these little after-school rehearsal sessions, and I went along and I sat in and played the drums. But I just remember thinking afterwards, they're just they're just a bunch of kids. <laughs> and what am I doing? I'm I'm, a, I'm doing a degree, you know. This is not being a band with his children, so so it sort of it went okay. But um, I didn't really hear any more. I didn't hear back from them, you know, I didn't really know what how they felt about it. Yes. Uh, until they started, a few months later, they started popping into the library where I was working on a Saturday and they'd come in and say hello. And said, you know, do you fancy doing another rehearsal? So I kind of went along again and yeah, it just, it, it sort of started from there really. So I think the first proper gig I did with them was, a, 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 I think it was like a parent-teacher association gig in Acton. <laughs> and uh, 
and I think we also did North London Collegiate School for Girls as well. It was that kind of, you know, we were just so far removed from anything groovy or happening, but, but it just seemed to do. It was kind of fun. Um, but certainly Gary and Jason, um, a friend of ours called Jason Hobart, I know the two of them used to go to the Clarendon. And again, you know, I had known nothing about the Clarendon and it was only up the road in Hammersmith, you know, I have no idea about this place. But so Gary said, oh yeah, there's a place called the Clarendon at Hammersmith, there's some really good garage bands and stuff like that. So, and that's, uh, you know, I still started going along, going along there. And, and right. Was, and we'd also see like bands like the Prisoners as well. And I think the Prisoners, you know, for, for pretty much most, most of the bands that we know and we've played with, you know, the Prisoners were kind of really quite a seismic kind of influence. Yes. Of, of so us, so was know. that particular, was that a style that you had already started to gravitate towards, you know, the Patrick McGuin kind of groovy scene and that psychedelic yeah. kind of? I guess so. I guess it was sort of was a reflection, you know, it was the kind of music that we liked to listen to. Yes. Uh, on, a, on a kind of, you know, personal level. But, and so I suppose in a way it made sense that, you know, we were going to play that sort of stuff in a band, you know. Um, but yeah, we did start off doing lots of covers, as most bands do. Um, but bit by bit, you know, Gary started writing songs and, you know, you know, he slipped them into the set. But primarily, you know, for quite a while, it was still a lot of cover versions. And I think we we were kind of known as a sort of, oh, yeah, when you hear the Aardvarks playing Save My Soul by the Wimple Winch, it's a really good cover. Or they do a really good cover of this. They do a really good cover of that, you know. So we were kind of known as, yeah, if you're going to hear a cover version of a garage track or, a, you know, a freak big track, you know, the Aardvarks really know how to nail it. So, uh, but uh, rather than, oh, they write such amazing songs, you know, <laughs> <really kind of> like, <laughs> this sort of go-to, yeah, they're great uh, for covers. But um, but yeah, I mean, the original the originals did start to appear. As time yes, absolutely. So what what kind of year was this that you had started sort of rehearsing or playing with them at various schools? This but, would have been about 85. I was going to say, when I did an yeah. interview with the guy from ETA, he mentioned mm. that they were really young as well. I mean, they, they had were really young, yeah, really. And I think their first gig was at, at the school where they had sort of told the caretaker that it was just going to be a little rehearsal, and suddenly <laughs> there was all these punks that turned up from all over the country, including <laughs> Joe Strummer, who was helping to put the chairs out, um, and and you know members from who went who were eventually in the cult. I think one of the guitarists from Slaughter and the Dogs turned up, and I think they were only wow. sixteen. I think they had to shoplift their all their equipment as well because they had no money. So. It's quite. It's an amusing story if you listen to it. Paper rounds weren't going to cover that colour cost. No, they had they had to case the joint and and, and uh, go into the anyway. So yes. So what was the year that you started playing live? Well, uh, I would say eighty end of eighty five, a, a little bit of eighty six, and then properly in eighty seven. Eighty seven really. That's when we really did start playing a lot, and a lot of that was down to. Uh, I was in correspondence with a guy called Hugh Della, who at that time used to do a fanzine called Freak Beat. I don't know if you've ever come across that fanzine, in your fanzine archive. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, he was um, he did a fanzine called Freak Beat, and I used to drop him a line, and we'd swap cassettes and stuff like that, and just rave about various bands that we like. And he himself was in a band. He they were all based in Hastings. And they were in a kind of uh, 
a kind of a band which they were really into the sort of pretty things British R&B kind of thing and, and also Dutch beat as well Dutch beat was a really massive thing which I had no idea about at all mm. until I until I met Hugh that, that there's been, there'd been this whole thing in the Netherlands with bands like the Outsiders and Q65 Ooh, in the right. mid 60s so so suddenly they you know there was this whole kind of sub subculture of 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 people who dressed in a particular way and it was really sort of quite sort of downbeat duds you know but very if you see pictures of the early pretty things or the fairies uh, not the pink fairies but the, the fairies they're very yeah. sort of you know it's, it's it's a very striking look which they went for so but Hugh so I think the point I'm getting to is Hugh was in this band and uh, he'd played at the Clarendon a few times with his band and they were called the Wild Things and on one occasion he phoned me up and said um there's a, a slot going with us at the Clarendon if you want to do it. So we said, we, I said, yeah, we'll definitely do it. So that was in April 87. Um, that, that was a club downstairs at the Clarendon Hotel. You had the big ballroom upstairs, which right. we never mani managed to get to play, which I was always a bit sad about. Yes. But uh, the downstairs club was on a Friday night, used to be run by a guy called Mike Spencer, uh, an American guy who'd, who'd lived in London for quite some time and his he had a band called the Cannibals and uh, he was you know he's a very color, very colorful character he had been in a band called the Count Bishops in the 70s uh, there's, there's loads of stories I mean you, you should really get an interview with him if you can sometime but uh, yes. but he ran this he, he ran this club on a Friday night so we started to play there in 87 and uh, became a bit of a fixture on, on at that club uh, yeah for, well, pretty much until they knocked the clarendon down whenever that was 1990 or whatever so at um, that stage because because kind of you know that period i mean that whole pop world that had been sort of that trevor horn production sort of thing mm. with duran duran and abc though he'd never produced duran duran but you know that kind of scene had sort of gone hadn't they they'd had their period and indie pop with the smiths they'd broke up in 87 so people were looking for the next sort of thing were you feeling like we're about to take off here and and let let us no get... I, I don't i don't think we had any concept of of being a going concern or or, or i think we just felt we were really in some kind of strange satellite orbiting miles away from anything that anyone would really take notice of you know um and yeah i think at that time certainly you know the kind of garage and psychedelic mod stuff was so kind of you know it was never it wasn't covered in the, in the media i think sounds i used to buy sounds because it would review um garage and, and new psych records and stuff like that but it was, i think it was really the only one that I did yeah uh, but it, it just felt like a sort of like a secret club really and I, I don't think you know obviously we weren't relating to well, definitely not anything in the mainstream but i don't think we were particularly caught up with the sort of indie thing too much either i think we'd just become part of this um it's sort of, it was a little world of its own, I guess, you know, but there were opportunities to play gigs and there were people who would come and see you. So it was it was almost like a very sort of self-sufficient society yes. on its own on its own. But um I don't remember anyone saying, Oh, have you heard 
the new thing by some indie band, you know, at that time, you know, I think we were just very much doing our own thing and not really caring too much about what else was going on. And I certainly at that period, I don't think a band like the Aardvarks were, would have had a hope in hell in any, any kind of commercial or taking off sense, you know, but yes. certainly, certainly the, the people who would come to see you, you know, liked us and uh, there was a, a scene, you know, but, uh, and I suppose we, we was kind of satisfied with that, you know, we just got on with it and enjoyed, enjoyed it for what it was, you know. But then, there's that moment where you, you sort of want to record, start recording material mm. and I guess taking it a little bit further, you know, than just yeah. kind of playing the local <clears throat> pub. I mean, because mm. you're also young still, there must have been a feeling that, yes, we must, we must now go do the single, do more touring, do the album. So was there ever a kind of a bit of a drive like that or, or did it just never, was it just it, never it, sort of part of the conversation? I think it, it just sort of um, happened because a chap saw us, a German uh, guy um, who ran a label called Screaming Apple. I think he'd seen us on one occasion and uh, he got in touch and said he'd really like to do a 45 with us. And um, he asked, would we do a, an EP, a four track EP? So we said, yeah, that would be great. We'd love to do that. That was about... 89 so it was a couple of years into playing quite regularly uh, we'd had one track on a a compilation um called raw cuts which was which was a, a compilation of you know then current uk garage bands i suppose so there was yeah. uh, we had one track on that which we'd recorded ourselves and um but yeah the Richie from Screaming Apple saw us and said, I'd really like to do a release with you. So that's, I think at that moment we thought, mm, you know, that's, that could be fun. So um, we did that. I, we'd been supporting um, the Headcoats one night at the Falcon right. in Camden, in Camden. And we, we'd been supporting, uh, yeah, so it's Billy Childish's band at that time, uh, the Headcoats. And uh, I asked Billy afterwards, would he produce it? Uh, I just, I suppose I probably had a few drinks and uh, I just sort of plucked up the courage to ask him, would he actually produce it? I said, we've had a chance to do an EP. Could we come down to Rochester and do it down at the studio that he used? So uh, we went down there and recorded it there. And um, it came out, that was towards the end of 89. So it came, yeah, yeah. So it came out in 89, beginning of 90, something like that. So that was our first release. So that was, you know, but that was, you know, three years on from when we first started gigging you know it yeah. wasn't like we started playing and we had a record out six months later but it I guess it sort of became a kind of an indicator of the sort of time frame that the Aardvarts kind of continued to work <laughs> things <laughs> things <laughs> things didn't happen that quickly you know yeah it was very uh, casual isn't it it's very leisurely yeah. it's a very yeah. leisurely band so did you yeah. start to build up a following in germany at all with this kind of yeah we they, we we were very popular in germany um i think that ep was higher in in the indie charts there than i think we were higher than the charlatans i think we were even more popular than the charlatans right <laughs> I think it might be in the Berlin in the charts. It wasn't the whole of Germany. I think it was like <laughs> by a city, you know. So, so, but I think, yeah, um, I think we were only pipped by Betty Boo 
and the Happy Mondays, but uh, <laughs> you know, it could be worse. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, but no, and we we did go to Germany a few times, and um, yeah, always had a really good crowd, really good turnout, and yeah, people really really went for it over there. Yes, who was who was your guy who sorted out the the German tour? Because I did an interview with a guy called Thomas. Don't know his surname, but he seemed to be part of the Alan McGee and Dan Tracy world. And okay, yeah, I don't of... think it would have been him. No, I think it was probably someone that um, Richie at Screaming Apple had probably dealt with before. And I'm afraid I, I don't. Know yeah, the name. but that's fair enough. But, uh, but... So as as the sort of as we went into the 90s, I mean, there would there been sort of towards the late 80s there'd been the rave scene and then we'd obviously had the mm. Seattle grunge scene that had appeared but you mm. were sort of you were all poised almost for potentially the Britpop world weren't you at this stage you know not well uh, yeah not yeah but it was I suppose if uh, if at any time a band like the Aardvarts could have had a bit of attention and maybe a bit of a, a chance at a pop of it I suppose I suppose that would have been the time um we did record an album called Bargain, which um, we'd started recording in 93. So I suppose you could argue that was a little bit prior to all that. Yeah. Um, Who was but, that um, label going to be? Who well, was that? That, was, that was originally going to be a label called UFO, which was part of vinyl experience in Hanway Street. In Hanway Street, um, there was a record shop called Vinyl Experience. They also had a they also had a, a shop in Camden as well, but the guy who ran that, Mark I can't remember his surname. It was a guy called Mark who, who was quite a, quite a well heeled American. And I think he was known for being like a massive beetle collector at auction stuff. So he obviously had a few bob had a, had a, had a couple of record shops and and obviously decided to branch into having a label as well called UFO Records. And um, I think one of his biggest biggest bands was the was the Sundial, right? Um, and because their album, I think their album came out about 1990. So yeah, we, we was we got signed to UFO, but that was through a guy called Jim Benner, who had been part of XFM in its original incarnation uh, prior to it being sort of taken over. Uh, but Jim worked at the shop and um, I worked with his wife funnily enough and so I got to know Jim that way and he was him and Jim and his wife Meg used to come and see us a lot and uh, he was quite he thought that we could do well by getting a getting a contract and getting an album out so we we signed with UFO and we started to record Bargain I think towards the tail end of 93 and um, I think it was only about after about two or three sessions that things started to look a bit rocky. We, we tried to book a session with the studio and it was just a sort of a localish studio in Southall, which isn't far from here. Um, and we were said, well, sorry guys, you know, UFO haven't coughed up for the previous three sessions. We'll have to put things on ice for a bit. And that became unfortunately a bit of a sign of, of the way things were gonna run for a while. So we had this, hiatus throughout 94 with nothing getting done I mean we'd had the bulk of it done I but you know in the first few sessions it was really just tidying it up and I think we had one extra song to record yes then we helped this kind of hit this kind of hiatus and um, eventually UFO 
they went, I think he shut the label down. And um, then there was some doubt about, yeah, because the studio had said, look, you know, they haven't paid us. Uh, the label is now gone bankrupt, apparently. Um, we've got the master tapes. We'll try and hold on to them for you until you find somewhere else. And uh, I think I had a brainwave that um, Delirium might go for it because I didn't necessarily know the label as such, but I knew one of the guys who worked there. He was a guy called Ivor Truman. Right. And he'd been involved with the Freak Beat fanzine that my friend Hugh had been involved with years earlier. And I knew that Ivor worked at Delirium, had been part of this label. So I just wrote to him, sent him a cassette of what we had. And he said, yeah, we'll, we'll put it out. We really like it. But we weren't really a Delirium band because, you know, they were all kind of magic... Um, uh, what do you call porcupine tree the yes. sort of more i suppose coming from that hawkwind gong space rock thing i i think a sort of chirpy mod site band wasn't really quite what they would normally do but they liked it and i suppose they liked us and um but the thing was so they actually paid the, the outstanding bills of the studio and they paid for us to record a, a couple of tracks to to fill up the album Right. But then, of course, we had to join the schedule of release, and that took a little while as well. So the album didn't really surface till 95, I think. Yes. So it, it kind of looked by that point. And, you know, it, it, it's, I suppose, in, in the climate at the time, it sort of fitted. But I suppose, in some ways, you know, some people might have thought we were jumping on the bandwagon, but uh, it was just the kind of stuff we did anyway. Yeah. And had done, had done prior to, you know, Blur and all that stuff. Because so. one of my, because that, that's an album that I sort of came across during the time. And um, which is kind of, a, you know, like looking back at all these kind of, um, this period in the 80s, I suppose, especially, there's a lot of bands I missed the first time that are sort of now the second time you go, or not the second, but now, you know, you can sort of access and at least listen to them. So it's amazing that I kind of got hold of, you know, I don't know why, because you didn't probably come and tour around. East Anglia at all and you know there no was... I mean we didn't have any kind of um you know we never had management we never had anything working around us you know I mean we Delirium did get us a couple of gigs here and there we did they did take us to Spain on one occasion but we didn't have a kind of an itinerary of touring or anything like that so we weren't really out there pushing it um yeah again I, th I think it was it was always still that thing in the background that it was is this it's just something we do because we like to do it you know i don't think anyone was really on the point of giving up the day job over it you know no but i suppose but i suppose had someone heard it and go you guys are incredible <laughs> blah 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 you know we'll send you off on the road and you know we'd plug the hell out of it and had a hit with rc clark you know you know had it had, had a year or two of that before we you know disappeared then we would have probably gone for it but uh but I don't think there was any, any nothing really like that was in place for it. Yes. You know. And also, I mean, the last track on side two, Time to Fly, can you remember how that came together, that particular song? Because it's, would you say that's not very representative of the rest of the album? I th yeah, I think that's probably why it's an interesting song in a lot of ways, because <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Gary, Gary turned up with it once and we go, wow. Uh, I think Jason said, it sounds a bit like something out of a, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. <laughs> 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 Imagine Joseph on stage singing it. Or something. Yes. It, just, it, it was so kind of different to the rest of the, to the kind of stuff that we did. But uh, 
It's a very, I suppose, sen- it's a, I, suppose I quite like it because it's a very kind of sentimental song. It's got sort of slightly, mm. you know, warm and happy and I don't yeah. know, lyrics. And I suppose I've always quite liked it. That was one of those ones that seemed to stick with me over the decades. So I just wondered yeah. if you could remember how, you know, re- recording it or, yeah. No, I remember it. recording it very well. It was, it was a really nice song to record. Um, you know, we really enjoyed it. I think because it was different. And it was it was it just had a different flavour to it, and uh, yeah, it was it was a really nice song to do. And we had you know Mark had lots of fun at the end, you know, with all the guitar stuff and this echoing repeats and stuff like that. We were trying to build it up at the yeah. end, you know, it's got that sort of big build up at the end. Um, and I suppose in some ways it it was probably a little bit of an indication of where Gary might have started to go with his songwriting. Yeah. Um, but I think by that point. You know, I think Gary's interests were starting to lie elsewhere, really wasn't really writing a lot by that point. But I suppose had he done so, you know, maybe he, there might have been a few more songs like that, or we might have gone off in a slightly different direction. But um, yeah, but it's an interesting song and it's, it's it also was a good way to close to the album with. You know? Yeah. So when so. that came, when the album came out, mm, mm. was that pretty much when the band we're starting to sort of think, well, shall we give it, you know, I mean, did, was, cause you did, there was another single, wasn't there about butter, buttermilk, buttermilk boy. Yeah. That was uh, our last single. Um, so I suppose between that was in 99. So I suppose from bargain coming out, you know, that you had this kind of four year period where, yeah, I think we just mostly played gigs and we, we, I think by that point we'd become something of a fixture on the mod scene and and the mod festivals and you know we, they were great fun because you could you could do a weekender in in Spain or or wherever you know it was it was a really good sort of structure about all that and they were always fun gigs to do so but uh, we weren't really recording in that time we we did have one song on a compilation album called Taking a Detour uh, compilation which was um, put out in 96 so I suppose that kind of breaks up the four year period so yes so you know a little bit but um, but yeah and and that was a song called I Threw Her a Line and that was a little bit in the kind of buttermilk boy mode it's getting a bit rockier a little bit more sort of you know not so kind of modish I suppose not so flowery just a little bit more harder <laughs> rock, but not heavy, not heavy metal. No, we're not. <laughs> but, uh, we're but, not. Um, heavy but, metal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then bad but, news. Um, but uh, like, yeah, Buttermilk Boy and Bad Clothes. That was the last single. Um, uh, that, again, that was on Detour Records. Uh, we actually did, did that. At, yeah. I was going to say, and then how did that, that was on Detour. And then how did mm. the band sort of decide... Was that going to be, in the words of Jim Morrison, the end at that point? Well, that was the thing. We never really said it, you know. No one ever, we didn't have that sort of conference down the pub and we just said, well, guys, do you think maybe it's time to call it a day? We didn't have that conversation. Right. We just sort of, I guess it just started to gradually peter out. But I think we thought, well, the the least we could do, I suppose, is have some kind of final hurrah, you know, and uh, we we had a couple of we we became we started to get a, you know, the yard bars are doing a, a final gig uh, what what again so uh, <laughs> so it was like 
so we thought well we've got we got we've got to time this properly we've got to sort this out so um the very first uh, beat bespoke weekend which is now a, a regular calendar fixture has been since 2004 at the very first one we thought well that would be a good way to go out so uh, we we played at the very first beat bespoke week, weekend which is run by a guy called rob bailey and the new untouch new untouchables um so that was the first time they'd done that and we thought yeah this is a good one to end on yes um so we made it, it was official then that was in 2004 and we didn't do anything again but, um, mm -hmm. until Cherry Red re-released Bargain uh, back in 2013. Yeah, and, and they also included lots of singles as well on it, didn't they? they, they yeah, they put, they put the singles on it and a couple of extra bits and pieces. I mean, I mean the thing is, with, with the adverts, I mean, given how long we'd been around, you know, our recorded output wasn't that high. You know, it was, you know, very small considering how long we'd been been going yeah so it, you know it did it did make a sort of a tidy complete you know put the album out put, stick the singles on because there was only a couple two or three of them yes and some unreleased things so it was kind of a nice package and on the back of that we did get back together for about a year because uh, we thought well we were offered some gigs and uh and the first one we did, funnily enough, was at Beat Bespoke again. <laughs> having having said farewell to everyone at Beat Bespoke in 2004, we came back, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, it's us again uh, in 2013. So but uh, so we did that. Um, but we got a, a, a friend of ours called Parsley uh, in on keyboards. And Parsley is kind of a, a, you know, he has his own kind of following, I think, as well. He's He's been in numerous bands himself, um, but we, we asked him to join in because he thought, well, we if we're going to do songs, we did that sort of thing where you play your album, <laughs> which is what bands do, isn't it? You know, when they get back together, yeah. they play their album. And uh, we thought, well, we, have, we should play Bargain or, or mo as much of it as we can. But then we kind of thought, yeah, but we had keyboards on loads of songs on the album. We've, we never had a keyboard player yeah. ever. Um, and so we thought, well, we'll get Parsley in to do the keyboards. Um, and then the only time we'd ever had a keyboard player prior to that was um, what, in, back in 94, we were, we were on the James Whale show and um, we, we borrowed Jay Darlington, who was, who was in Coolish Faker. Right. We, we, we got him in to play Hammond because he was a good friend of ours. And at that time, he shared, shared a house with Jason, the bass player. So Jay was someone we knew very well. So... Um, yeah, he came down, we had to sort of lug this huge, great Hammond organ into this studio off Carnaby Street, which was a complete nightmare. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and we, we did we did Fly My Plane, which is one of the tracks on, on Bug. We did that live on the James Whale show. Yeah. So that was the only other time we ever had a keyboard player in the band. Yeah, because I was watching your uh, a clip of uh, a whole live show, 1991 at, uh, is it Brentford? Oh, yeah, the Red Lion in Brentford. That's right, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that, that was that well recorded, uh, well filmed, and and almost I think you had two cameras as well, and it's almost been slightly edited together. Yeah, I think so. I think they had this kind of system, which I think some venues did, where you know they probably had a couple of fixed cameras in the venue, and they would flog you a video if you wanted a video of your band. And I think we thought, yeah, why not? Let's get a video of it. You know, see yes, yeah, with their little effects, you know, with their sort of very crude kind of <laughs> titlings and. You know, you know, pans across the stage and sort of 
faces going in and out. So, but yeah, we just thought it was a bit of fun. We thought, well, yeah, we'll get, we'll get, get a copy for the archive. We don't really have anything on video. Let's let's do it. Let's get a copy. That's quite nice, so, actually. So when yeah. when Cherry Red brings these things out, do they tell you kind of how many copies they manage to you know sell? Do they say oh, we're going to print up? thousand five thousand i mean i'm always kind of curious i mean because obviously they're fantastic kind of they've got you know a big marketing well not big marketing but they're kind of well-known you know company yeah i mean yeah of course and you know even from back in the 80s you know from releasing stuff and whatever you and of course the big thing with cherry red was that they put out the misunderstood album you know the um, the uh, the the 60s band misunderstood so that was quite that you know for that kind of scene that we'd come from, that particular release was massively important. Um, so yeah, it was nice to, to be on Cherry Red, which I thought was great, but um, I couldn't tell you, how, I, did they tell us how many? They, uh, they probably did say how many they were pressing up. Yeah. Um, and I think it sold okay. I mean, I, I tried to get a copy recently and I couldn't find one, so maybe maybe they did sell them all. <laughs> but, yes. um, but I think initially they, they wanted to do a comp, compilation or something like that it was a little bit strange we thought well you know it's not as if there's that much to choose from you might as well just put the album and the singles out it's not like we've got this vast archive to pick and choose from you know so um so in the end yeah thankfully they they, they did just, that they saw yeah. sense but then you've gone into another band haven't you which is yeah um, i mean I, i'm currently in a band called of arrow hill which is um a three-piece, and that's with uh, Jason Hobart, who was the bass player in the Aardvarks. Uh, twice he was bass player. He, he sort of left for a few years in the, in the mid-90s. But uh, Jason and I have played in different bands over, over time. Um, but signed with Jason and a chap called Adam Easterbrook, um, who's from the Wirral, um, um, Liverpool sort of thing. So. Yeah, I met Adam at, at work about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and we just got talking and he said, told me about this band that he'd had. I think he just disbanded it at that point and um, he was just doing solo stuff. And uh, so yeah, we, myself and Jason joined in, we're now a three piece, we've done three albums together, but uh, Of Our Hill as a band have been going for a good 20 years. And I think this is the, we've done like nine up. I think the last album we did, which is called Hangover Square, I think that's album number nine for the band. Right. Third, third album for myself and Jason. But so you, did nine. you do Domestic Espionage and a Conspiracy of Yeah, God? yes, that's right, yeah. So those those are the three albums that Jason and I have played with, with Adam. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really good stuff. We, we really like it a lot. Um, it's different to the kind of stuff we've done before. And um, and we, you know, just, just as a social thing, the three of us are very good friends and we like to meet up. And so it's just it's just a nice situation um, at this stage of the game to, to be in a, a band like that. Yeah. But, um, prior to that, I had been in The Fallen Leaves, um, which I really did enjoy a lot. I was in them for about, I was in them for about four years. And um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're still going, of course. And um, yeah, they've got a really good following and they play quite a lot well they did before the lockdown of course but they, they have a they have a residency at the home Penanka, um every month and yeah just very good uh, very good stuff punk rock for gentlemen is their is their rallying cry <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so this is Rob Green, who... Um... Rob, Rob Green is the singer and songwriter. Rob, Rob Simmons, ex of Subway Sect on guitar. Uh, Matthew Carris on bass. And Brett Buddy Ascot on the drums. Right. He used to Lovely. be in the chords, so he is a mod legend. Yeah, absolutely. And one time, Phil King, who went into Lush. Phil King, of course, uh, who has... Well, he's, he still plays with the Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, yeah, Phil's done a lot of stuff. Um, Phenomenal. Je yeah, Jesse Hector. Yeah, I think yeah, Phil's an, an all-round chop gentleman as well. Yes, well, he was in a very obscure band called The Hangman's Beautiful Hangman's Daughters. Beautiful Daughters, that's right. Yeah, You've just got a co compilation out this year or last year. Yeah, and I think, like, um, good friends of... Dan Tracy back in the day as well. Yes, um, I think they toured yeah. with them quite a bit. And um, I think one of the members was also with Dan at one stage. Yeah, Dan came to see, I remember Dan came to see us in about 92, 93 at the Camden Falcon. And uh, he, I remember he came up to me and he just gave me this note. He said, don't read it now, read it later on. <laughs> okay I mean I'd never met him before I mean I knew what he looked like and uh, I knew um, stuff about the TVPs but I thought oh my god it's Dan Tracy so he just came up to me with this note and sort of just said read it later on and he, he'd kind of disappeared so it was like I just instantly <laughs> opened it up he said hello my name's Dan I'm in a band called the TVPs and we're thinking of giving it another go how about are you are you lot thinking of giving it another stab in 93 fancy doing some gigs together <laughs> so <it's, laughs> so uh, we, we did play with them a couple of times and um yeah that was that was great, was great yes well yeah. Uh, yeah thankfully he's still alive and and sort of been quite well looked after so i think there was a benefit gig from him a few years ago wasn't there that's right the hundred club i think it was yeah the legend that is Dan Tracy i'm sure someone's going to bring a film out about Dan because so many people talk about him and um, yes, there was that film, I don't know if you saw it a few months ago, on the Nightingales, Rob Lloyd and the Nightingales, called King Mark. I missed it, unfortunately, because uh, not having, I think Sky Arts wasn't on, was it on Freeview at that point? I'm not it, sure, but I didn't, it, I didn't it, see it. Yeah, it's just come out on Freeview, <laughs> we were very excited with that, so uh, yeah, so there you go. So so look, if you if you could have said, so what happened to the rest of the band, by the way? You know, the the other members of... Well, the Aardvarks. Well, um, Gary and Mark still live in the area. Um, Gary, for a very long time, has worked at EMI Archives. So he's usually got a, a hand in, you know, reissues and stuff like that. He works in the archive, photographs and stuff like that. Uh, Mark is still around. Um, Jason is, is, is uh, as I said, well, I, I still play... In, in Alvaro Hill with Jason. Jason yes. works at U UCL. I mean, funny thing is we both work in libraries. I work at the British Film Institute Library and he works at UCL Library. So we're kind of a library faction. Yes. But um, but yeah, you know, people are around just getting on with their lives, got married and all that stuff, you know. But uh, I think out the, it's only really Jason and I have kept playing. Gary and Mark unfortunately didn't really keep it going. I think Mark noodles around with little bands, probably. But, but yeah, it's a shame because he's such a good, good guitarist. You know, he really should be playing. Yeah. In bands, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I think you know we had that sort of lap of honour with you know into 2013 doing a few gigs and it was fun, but I don't think you know 
we thought you know we didn't really think no we're not going to get back together and write another album or anything like that we just enjoyed it for what it was you know um so yeah nice but they're, nice. they're still out there getting it's good on it's it. good that everyone's yeah still you know relatively happy and doing their thing wherever that is so that's good so, so look if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out what what would what advice or wisdom would you be able to kind of slip so, it's a difficult question i think i probably would have said to myself learn how to actually play the drums properly go for lessons <laughs> um, <laughs> i don't know I, I really don't know um uh get a, get a, get a well-paid job <laughs> yes <laughs> it's funny because actually on this show i've done so many drummers actually i've just realized keep talking to you from john <laughs> john french on you know with captain beefheart that's amazing um and lindy morrison she destroys me at one stage um really? and woody woodmancy yeah so i did him twice and um so and then hunt sales who was in iggy pop and tin machine as well so i keep thinking oh, actually i've done loads of dramas actually so that's that's an they're, they're right there doing their thing actually so it's you know it's quite the thing did you just on that that technical front did you um how did you get on with the click track hated it used to stress me out absolutely i'd be in i'd be in bits as soon as it kicked in and as soon as i would lose it the moment it started within a, within a few seconds that was it i'd be out of time and just completely stressed. So we just we ditched it very early on. <laughs> I think I think we only used it once. I think when we were recording the album, I think there was one song we couldn't couldn't quite nail it. And the, the guy said, look, yeah, maybe we'll try a click track. And uh no, it was even worse. So um <laughs> <laughs> Well if you ever get if you ever get around seeing this there's a film on the wedding present doing the album George Best. And there's a lot about the drummer and the producer and the drummer being replaced during the session. Um, it, you know, I think he still, I think he still feels quite hurt by it. And the I'm producer, surprised. it's um, yeah, it's quite grim, isn't it? Yeah, I do feel for the drummers. What I didn't realise is, because you know, you hear most bands as an, as a punter, and you just think it sounds fine to me. But then there's this whole, even a scratchy band like uh, the Wedding Present. You think I can't believe they could could get that worked up about the drumming, surely. But they do. Yeah, that was, yeah, yeah, definitely. They forget all the hard work, but how hard work it is. Well, there was Physical a guy. effort. Because um, the guy from the Bible called Boo Huadine, Huadine, um, he said that, you know, you've got a, the drummer kind of makes or breaks a band, you know, you've got, you know, they, they can make a bad band sound quite good, you know, and you just have to, you know, so the drummer is everything really. So there you go. No it's pressure on you then, is there? Never true a word. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, Ian, thank you ever so much. This has thank been you, magic. David. Yes, it's good. And uh, do you, uh, yes, do you check it out. There's, there's another one uh, about a bit about Dan. There's a guy called from the 1000 Violins, Colin Gregory, that um, talks a lot about Dan, actually, if you haven't mm. checked that one out. I've had to edit some of it out. Really? It's funny because, yeah, I mean, he wasn't someone that, I mean, I think a lot of people say that, you know, you're probably not the sort of person you would really particularly get to know. Um, I mean, I, I find that sort of, that band I mean, as a thing, the TVPs, you know, it's a bit like, what's that other lot? Um, 
Oh God. Um, anyway, the, the TVPs collectively, it's just amazing how one band can attract such kind of strange, but interest, very interesting people, you know, like Joe Foster and Ed Ball. And yeah. The thing, thing, Ed, Ed is a lovely chap. He's a very sociable, friendly guy. And uh, he, he used to, he used to come and see the Aardvarts from time to time if we were playing. And he'd always come up and have a, oh, wow, how are you? Really enjoyed the show. It was very nice to see you. Yeah, yeah really lovely guy, you know. But um, but there was always a slight air of mystique about the TVPs. So they just, there was something, I don't know, otherworldly about them. You, you, you couldn't really imagine talking about the price of, you know, chips with Dan. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you really wouldn't know what to talk about, you know. <laughs> so maybe that's why he just gave me the note because he didn't want to engage in conversation. But uh, yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess a certain shyness, I suppose, uh, about them, yeah. him particularly. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that kind of early eighties period, you know, that that kind of nostalgia was sort of kicking in for the sixties, which was really only you know twelve. 13 years prior to that, when you know, you're thinking about that thing about Sid Barrett and Sid Barrett became a cult figure for, for people of our age as well, you know, but they were kind of harking back to a time, you know, which wasn't really that far in the past. It's a bit like you're saying earlier about the Beatles, you know, they hadn't broken up that much earlier when people were really getting into this nostalgia about the Beatles. And I think that's kind of 60s thing was, you know, by 1980, you know, kids who were too young at the time were starting to think of this myth mythical world of the 60s. Um, yeah, and I think that sort of thing has just kind of carried on. I think that psychedelic, interest in psychedelic music and, you know, it's never really gone away, not just psychedelic music, but that kind of era, should we say. Mm, yeah. It just sort of transmutes. It just kind of keeps going and mutates and then there's another, there's a whole new bunch of, bands and a whole new bunch of clubs and you know then there's they grow up and fall apart and then there's some other another wave coming over the horizon it just seems to keep <clears> going you know well I guess they you know you know everything that sort of happened in the 60s has just been recycled hasn't it decades you know from punk to indie to you know everything yeah. kind of like where you can yeah. sort of go yeah, all the it's way all back. connected in a way isn't it yeah yeah I mean there's, there's nothing really radically different that's happened since the 60s apart you know mm. I mean obviously there's you know rap and mm. other things like that but you know if it's kind of guitars and drums and the vocal it's going to be yeah. you know you can go oh actually they're just ripped off the moody blues or, oh they're just ripped off you know <laughs> you know it's like you know yeah. I mean, it's just it's all very traceable isn't it you know you listen it is to yeah oasis in the, you know in the 90s and went mm, yeah okay oh yeah I just really it kind of used to depress me a bit, really. When all that sort of kicked off, I thought, oh, God, is this, is this really what we've got now, you know? <laughs> but, but in another way, you know, I suppose they were kind of, if, if a band with that sort of interest in that sort of sound from the past, you know, it was at some point you were going to get hit. At some point it was going to get to the top, you know, and they were the ones who kind of did it, I suppose, you know. Yes, this is true. This is very true. Yes. But anyway, one good film you should try and watch just came out on Amazon Prime was The Sound of Metal, if you get a chance. Yes, I saw the trailer for that. I must I must have a look. Um, it's all about drums. 
I know the worst nightmare of losing one's hearing as a drummer. Yes, this is um, tricky, isn't it? Tricky. Yes. But look, yeah. thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. David, thank you, and thank you. It's been very nice to talk to you. Yes, we'll leave it there. I think that we we do a bit more chat, but um, you probably don't need to any, hear any more of that. Anyway, look, <clears throat> if you got that far, well done. That, dear listener, was Ian O'Sullivan talking about life in music and the aardvarks. Go and check them out. They might just change your life, especially Time to Fly. It's a classic. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Uh, if you want to contact me for some nice reason, <laughs> if it's not nice, don't bother, um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>